Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Taylor Mertens. Taylor is a United Methodist pastor in Woodbridge, Virginia. He's earned degrees from James Madison University and Duke Divinity School. He regularly posts sermons, devotionals, and other theological reflections at thinkandletthink.com. He's also a part of the Crackers and Grape Juice podcast team. And he hosts his own lectionary podcast, Strangely Warm. We'll be teaming up for the next two weeks to bring you a crossover episode experience for the text for Advent 3 and 4. Hope you enjoy our crossover collaboration. I give you Taylor Mertz. Grace and peace and welcome to Strangely Warned and Synaxis, the crossover episode of the two greatest theological minds who record lectionary-based podcasts. Myself, Taylor Mertens, and the one and the only Scott Jones. Scott, how in the world are you, buddy? I'm doing well. It's great to be here. I We've never, like... Have we done a crossover episode? We have. We did it once. We have. We did one, right? Yeah. It was pretty good. Uh, but we, yeah, it was good. We decided that here we are in Advent, and there are two Sundays left in Advent, and we wanted to record episodes uh, talking about these wonderful readings. So this is Advent 3C. The readings are Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20, Take Me Home, Isaiah 12, 2 through 6, Water from the Wells, Philippians 4, 4 through 7, Rejoice, Rejoice. And Luke 3, 7 through 18, the brood of vipers. Um, Scott, I don't know you to be a viper, but uh, tell, you know, in case people uh, don't know you from my side of the the lectionary podcast spectrum, share a little bit uh, about who you are, what you find yourself doing for the Lord these days, and uh, what is a beloved Advent hymn of yours? Uh, you know, Viper was the call sign of Tom Skerritt's character yeah, in Top Gun. And Michael Ironside was Jester. Uh, yeah. I always thought Mother Goose was kind of like, it did sound a little like effeminate. Well, yeah. And Val Kilmer's Iceman, you know? And like, you got, yeah, Ice. You got, That's right. There's a sequel coming out. No way. With like yeah. Tom Cruise? Yeah. And then they did a spoof on it on Colbert and Anthony Edwards is like the hashtag, like put in ghosts. So like, like Goose, the ghost of Goose. So like Goose is there as a ghost. Like <laughs> That would actually, I'd go see that. I was yeah, it'd be great. Uh, so I am uh, a podcaster. I you know I'm a husband. I'm a I'm a resident of Pennsylvania, and I right now I'm doing uh, I'm, I'm sort of doing supply preaching ministry stuff at an RCA church in New Jersey, Clover Hill Reformed, which is a very historic little place. You know, it's historic because there's a graveyard in it. That's all. So six. yeah, you you have like the old grave. It's pretty interesting. Like uh, there's you know like headstones from like the early 18th century and stuff so it's kind of cool that's cool and uh heidegger said if you wanted to live authentically like spend more time in graveyards that was heidegger's advice i prefer graveyards to hospitals so a company can be i don't know different better worse depending on if you're an introvert or not yeah uh and what's a, an advent hymn that you really like oh you know i like uh 
I like come that long expected Jesus. Mm-hmm. We sang hymn number one this week. I said, Happy New Year, everybody. Let's start with hymn number one. We're just come that long expected Jesus. I went out, no, wait, or was it a come, come, Emmanuel? Might have been a come, whatever it was, it was number one. So it was cool. We sang the first hymn in the hymn. I've never done that before. That's pretty cool. Uh, of course, in like the United Methodist tradition, the first hymn isn't even number one. I got to check it to make sure I don't get this wrong. I'm pretty sure it's number 47, but that's the first hymn that's listed. Oh, it's 57. And it's uh, Oh, 4,000 Tongues to Sing, um, which is, you know, the Wesleyan hymn. But it's been the first hymn in all of the Methodist hymnals since uh, 1780. So there you go. That's interesting. You know, uh, I think I think this is right. All, I think most Advent hymns are in minor keys. Yeah, yeah. They're hard to sing. They're kind of dissonant. Yeah, that's... I there's, like, yeah, I there's like no, them. like, there's no heavy majors. Like, it's, it's, it's cool. I like Advent songs. I'm into it. I like them. They're hard. They're harder for people to sing. But I think that's kind of... Can be a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. It, you know, it can be, uh, you know, interesting. So... All right, well... Advent. Let's talk about Zephaniah. Uh, I can't remember the last time Zephaniah was in the lectionary. So, that's fun. But uh, so we get this little sing along, sing aloud, O daughter Zion, shout, O Israel, take me home. Uh, the king is in your midst. That's a theme I think that will appear in, in all of these texts that, that the, the king is near or the king is in your midst. This is the king is in your midst and you shall fear no more. Uh, what about people who are afraid? How will that make them feel in church on Sunday when they hear that uh, the Lord is speaking to them saying, hey, you don't need to be afraid because the king is in your midst. What do we say to the people who actually are afraid? Shame. Like Game of Thrones. Shame. Bong. Shame. <laughs> like, like, dude, would you shame them? That's what you do. I mean, it, people need to be shamed. That's what they need. Yeah, it's, it's, that's an interesting question, right? It, what's interesting here, too, is that, like, there's an acrostic here. Like, it kind of, like, if you know, acrostics is like, A, you know, the first verse yeah sing aloud you know is if you went a and you went all the way down to like a b c d e d c b a so it's like the acrostic in the middle is uh the king of israel is in your midst and then d would be you shall fear disaster no more on that day would be e it will be said in jerusalem d do not fear uh, o zion do not let your hands grow weak so there's this kind of sense that the fear right the the lack of fear comes with the presence of the Lord. It's like, what does it say in first John, right? Perfect love drives out fear. And so I think that that's, I sometimes do this. Like it's one of those things I do in sermons a lot. I think, uh, not, I mean, maybe not. I, I'm trying to do it infrequently enough that it's not repetitive, but uh, I sometimes ask people, think about the times when you were really pleased with how you behaved mm-hmm. that you, your kids, your, you know, family, everybody like you, you're like, Hey, like this is who I really want to be. And then think of like the times when you're really embarrassed about how you behave or you, you know, you're manipulative or cowardly or this or that. Like as I get, I would guarantee on most of the times you were not, uh, you, you were not pleased with who you were. You probably did not feel loved and accepted. Mm-hmm. You know, that's sort of like if, if all, if, if Edwards is right and then religious affections and all sin is a form of, of different forms of unbelief. There's something about like I think what causes fear, right, is just, is not believing that the presence of of God in the form of that perfect love is is there. So it, it leads it leads it leaves a vacuum, right? Mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah, and I mean, I think so. So much of this isn't just about like why people should or shouldn't be afraid, but the point that the King is with you, and and you know, for me, it always draws up questions like, well, how in the world do I know if if Jesus is with me, if God is with me, you know? Like I, I always think about like the Romans text, like if God is for us, who can be against us? But like 
how many times do I do something where like God shouldn't be with me? <laughs> you know, like I do, I, I choose the the evil sometimes. I choose the wrong. And um, you know, this question of knowing or how we know whether Jesus is with us or not is that's also kind of interesting to me too. Cause we like to think that Jesus is with you. Jesus is like taking the wheel or whatever, but there, I would imagine too, that like there is such evil that it does cast out love. Yeah. Or, you know, it's interesting. Cause I think like the, like the concept of like divine wrath, right. Is, does God's disposition really change to us or is it our disposition that changes? And so God's holy love is experienced as wrath when we're in rebellion. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just like, it's just like when you, you know, screwed somebody over or something and, and they don't know it, but you know it. And their gaze is like their friendly gaze becomes like judging and piercing because you know what you, you that you're going to screw them over or something. So that like their disposition doesn't change to you, but yours does to them. Mm-hmm. So I often wonder if the experience of like God's absence or things like that is, is less to do with the God's constancy and more to do with, with our yeah. proximity to it. Yeah. 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 That I like that. Um, so like to change a little bit, uh, I I think during Advent in particular, I'm very persuaded by some of the work of of like Will Williman in this instance. Like he he always tries to draw people's attention during the Christmas story to like we always want to read ourselves into a narrative, and so we think about being Joseph or we think about being Mary and we think about being in the manger. And Williman is quick to say, "No, we're the Empire. We're the ones. We're Herod hanging out. We're we're back in you know Jerusalem or in Rome or whatever." And I like here we're making America. Great again. Yeah, exactly. So this gets me in trouble, but I think like interestingly in verse 19, it says, I will deal with all your oppressors at the time and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame, shame into praise and ruin in all the earth. And so I'm always wondering like, is my church full of lame and outcast people? Like are the right people being gathered by God? Um, or am I the oppressor or am I part of the regime that is oppressive that God is dealing with? What does it mean for us to know that we are the oppressors that need to be dealt with swiftly? You know, that's a hard thing yeah. to reckon with. And this is, and this is like, we're all victim and victimizer, right? Like to some degree, like everybody is, you know, I mean, I remember hearing George Hunsinger at Princeton one time, he, you know, he, he had sympathies with liberation theology, but he said, you know, one of my questions for liberation theologians is, can a victim be a sinner? And, and we do realize, right, yeah, that we're a, always... What a hard question. I mean, that's, Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, but, but we, we do know, right. That that's all of us. All of us are neither just victims or victimizers, right? We're always like, this. it's like, this is like a, that, that London times supplement or a London times newspaper art essay contest in the early 20th century. They, the submission called for essays under the theme, what's wrong with the world. And GK Chesterton just wrote one sentence. I am yeah. sincerely GK Chester. <laughs> right? Like, so this is like the, the, the line of judgment, right? Nobody like who will, you know, who, who will st- st- stand the Lord's judgment, you know, like there's no one, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it, it, except Christ, you know, I mean, he's the one in, in whom, who can bear, you know, the judgment of the day of the Lord. Yeah. That's who I like that quote from good old GK. That's good. All right. Well, let's, let's go to Philippians or no Isaiah. Let's go to Isaiah. I'm looking at the wrong nice. text. Is Isaiah, is, is Isaiah, Isaiah track two? I usually only do track one, but Isaiah, so that's track two, right? Yeah. So I'm, I, I'm just going with all four. So it's. So for people that don't know, I guess like track two would be if you're following, if you want the readings kind of keyed to the gospel reading, right? Like that. Mm-hmm. So it's a little less Lectio continue ish. Oh, like, nice. it, yeah. you know, you notice like track one, like 
You'll be in like Hebrew, you'll be in like, you know, some Old Testament book for like six, seven, eight weeks or something, whereas track two jumps around a little more. Although yeah. in Advent, everybody jumps around. So. Yeah. And it's so like the way that I, it's like the first reading, the Psalm, the second reading, the gospel, you know, like, so the way in ordinary time, it's all confused, like how, if they relate to each other. Um, but uh, this is the, the way that the lecture I follow, it describes the Isaiah text as the Psalm for this week. Oh, gotcha. You All know. right, Canticle 9. Yeah, which is- oh, yeah, I guess this does do. Okay, no, you're right. This is the psalm. Yeah. Okay, so it's, and it's okay. Weird. it is the psalm. Sorry. Yeah, yeah you're right. Um, and it re- I mean, it does read like a psalm, which is kind of interesting. But um, Nice. So we're using Isaiah as a psalm. I didn't realize that. I love it. All right. All right, so Canticle 9. Surely God is... It is Canticle 9. Uh, surely God is my salvation. Uh, yeah. Um, surely God is my salvation. I wish that I could say that with like faith and a lot of my people could say it with faith, but don't you think we look for salvation in a whole bunch of other places instead? Yeah. I, yeah. I think, you know, it's interesting. Like my friend David Zoll talks about this a lot. He just came out with a book called Seculosity. Well, it's not out yet, but, uh, it's coming up, but he often talks about like self-justification projects. And I often think that much of our lives are that right. Like whether it's being, you know, the, the, through parenting, through spouse, through achievement, through sexual fulfillment, through money, through status, you know, what, like through, through being victimized sometimes, right? Like there, like there, there are, you know, these things are often things that like we, that we become functional, like they become our salvation projects. They become our justification projects. Yeah. And I think the church is, it falls victim to this and is prey to this as well. Uh, like, like the, the move of the church becoming this self-help continuum for people, you know, that I, I go to church looking for something that I'm, I'm going to feel fulfilled when I leave. And I always try to push people and say, you know, I hope you're not coming to church to get anything out of it, but to recognize that God's hopefully going to get something out of you. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Like that, that, you know, or even like that God will serve us like the worship service. Who's the servant? Like mm-hmm. God is the servant, right? But that there's a sense in which though, that God serves us what we need, not what necessarily our want, our perceived needs, right? Or our perceived wants like that God does. This is the thing. Like, this is sort of like the challenge of like the whole t- the character view of anyway, Tillich's theology, theology of correlation. Like, well, this culture asks the questions, the theology gives the answers. That assumes that the questions are the ones that we should be addressing, yeah, you know, that yeah, the, yeah. the, 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 and they don't need to be, reframed or the premises don't need to be challenged yeah or, or that the culture knows the right question to be asked yeah yeah exactly um all right so another thing that's interesting to me in this text uh it's about you know this idea of making god's deeds known among the nations uh and i think that a lot of people will immediately read a sort of a veil of evangelism into something like that that making god's deeds known among the nations is you know equated to uh go therefore and make disciples it, so is that what evangelism is is that what you would say evangelism is making making God's deeds known to all the, to all the nations? Yeah, it's interesting. The, the best thing I've uh, one of the best books I read in seminary. And I go back to it all the time. It's called Transforming Mission by David Bosch, and in that he sort of is in a section on evangelism. He he critiques this sense of which the, the sort of evangelical response to the world. Council Churches stuff, or you know, like the Love Zion Covenant and stuff. The evangelism and social justice are both halves of of Christian mission. And he's basically like, no, uh, it's it's actually um, it, it's actually evangelism isn't part of Christian mission. It's the heart of Christian mission. Mm-hmm. And he says that doesn't mean all Christian mission is evangelistic, right? Like it's not. There are things we do that are not. But but and, and how evangelism is is the call 
to people to respond to what God has done in and as Jesus Christ. So that's the lifeblood. That's the reason. Uh, it's the raison d'être, whatever reason for being for Christian mission. But not everything we do is evangelism, mm-hmm. even though it's it's at the heart of uh, you know the, the 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 desire to bear witness is at the heart of Christian mission. Yeah. So I don't know if I answered your question. No, no, that maybe that, I did. No, no, that's good. I I I think we look at terms like mission or evangelism very very monolithically. And we evaluate whether we're being a good or right church if we're doing X or Y or Z. And I, I think I think the idea of it being at the heart of mission is important. Um, but also we have to like I, I think we have to be careful in the way that we describe it. You know, we're not we don't evangelize because we want to like save people from eternal torment and hell. Like the idea that we're trying to sell like fire insurance or something. Um, it's that we are compelled because of the experience of God's love that we've had that we hope other people will have that experience as well. That sort of thing. Yeah. That certain witnesses and judges, right? Like it's a different role. You know, God alone is the judge. We're witnesses. It's a different role. Yeah. I, this is sort of tangential, but this last week I, I was listening to a, um, a professor from Wesley theological seminary, uh, Sati Clark, and he was talking and he steals this from, um, Brian McLaren. I think the difference between witness and withness, Hmm, uh, hmm. that that we we talk we when we talk about witness it's all like we witness to someone it's very much like a a, a one-way you know sort of process but withness is very different walking with someone rather than like walking toward them and witnessing to them but being with them and, and i really like this idea of embracing a theology of withness rather than witness yeah it, it assumes there's a back and forth mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I, I yeah i agree i like that witness i'm into that oh yeah i'm super into it um big time all right uh Let's go to Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it one more time, Scott. Rejoice. Um, so I'm a little worried, Scott, that Paul hasn't heard of a blue Christmas. What if What if you don't feel like rejoicing this time of year? I, I just heard. I've heard of this tradition now, the blue Christmas thing. You, you, right? You hadn't heard of it before. I ha- no. I think I mean, maybe I had, but I think we're doing it at this church. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like it's interesting because can you? rejoice and suffer it's probably hard to be happy and suffer like there's probably a difference in joy and happiness like like because i think joy is not incompatible with with blue circumstances i i think happiness is generally like and i don't think happiness is bad like i'm not like i'm not one of these people it's like don't be happy you know like it's happiness is consumers i don't think that but it's just but i think it is a more fleeting disposition you know where it seems that Paul is talking about something that seems to be able to be a state of being, you know, that, that like you often can't control if you're happy or not. Right. Like, uh, but you, you can sort of seemingly, I think Paul thinks you, you, you can be in a posture like, like rejoicing is a posture less than at this position. It seems. Yeah. And I don't want to go too far down this road, but I do think the way that uh, people rejoice in, let's say something like the white church versus the black church is very, very different in, in, in the sense of rejoicing in the midst of, of uh, tribulation, for instance, um, the church I serve is, is very, very diverse. And so I'm, I'm always feeling this tug, this tension, this pull between uh, the way that my, my white people versus the way that my black people respond to things that I say, or, the way that they hear God's word, very, very different. It's it just, it's kind of mind boggling sometimes to try to get a do sense you, Do of, you use possessive pronouns with them? Hey, my white people. Hey, my black people. <laughs> I, I, I have, I have before. And, um, what, uh, <laughs> That's fantastic. I, I've done, especially with, um, 
I was trying to talk about gender equity one time. And so I literally made everyone stand up during the passing of peace. And I told all the men they had to sit on one side and all the women on the other side. And, uh, and, and I preached two sermons very different, like two, one, one. Dude, you're, 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 I, that's like some of the stories you tell. I love like, like the pledge, like the pledge leads to the flat, all this stuff. You do edgy stuff, dude. I, I like, I don't know that I would do it, but I'd like to see you do it. I, I kind of like these stories you tell. Um, well, it works but like in the sense that, um, like when you when you separate the genders out, for instance, like you can preach one sermon to my men in the room and then another sermon to my women, and they're very different. You know, like and one is to say we have to repent for the way we've treated women, and I want you to hear how sorry we are, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I'm always trying to come up with crazy stuff. Like we had a uh, we had a fellowship time after worship yesterday. We call it soup and salad, and you know, like it, like in all things, these cliques of people sit together, um, and it, like everyone had little samples sizes for the soup because they want to try all the different soups that we brought and so i stood up and shouted to everyone i was like hey you're welcome to get seconds but um the only rule is if you want seconds you can't sit in the chair that you were sitting in you have to go sit somewhere else and like everyone kind of laughed because i'm trying to get people to mingle with each other and then people didn't do it and so i stood up again i said friends i can't do anything to you if you don't sit back down but god saw what you did I would I wouldn't comply just out of recalcitrance. <laughs> like that's one of those things like where it's like the law increases the trespass. Somebody says like don't step on the grass, so you want to step on the grass. I wouldn't I, and I'm the kind of person that's inclined to like switch seats because I'm an extrovert. But I think if you did it, I wouldn't do it. If you said it, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> oh man. We should serve a church together one day. That's so Lutheran. I'm that's so Lutheran, right? I'm so like, you know Our our extroversion would drive people away. All right. Um all right, so I, I okay, I'd like to push on this again. I think it's interesting to think about churches reading this text and hearing that Paul is imploring people not to worry. This is verse six in chapter four. Do not worry about anything. When it seems to me that worrying is at its peak this time of year, like how do you kind of rationalize that? This idea of telling people not to worry when, in fact, they're probably more worried now than they are the rest of the year. Yeah, I don't think like it's helpful to tell people not to worry because it, again, it's one of those things where like the law increases the trespass thing. I, I think it's, it's, I'd rather be descriptive about why we worry and think of how the gospel speaks into that as opposed to like telling people just don't worry. Cause it's just, again, I just don't think it's really effective. Um, but the other thing I think is interesting too, is that, you know, Zephaniah, right. The, the Lord's going to, what's going to happen. The, you, you, the fear can be driven out because the Lord will draw near, right? Will be, and here Paul is saying that's happened. The Lord is near. Mm, mm-hmm. So you have that in in the incarnation in the Christ event. You have the hope, you know, the, uh, Israel's hope and consolation, right? Desire of all the nations can, is come present. So there's there's this. You're on the other side of what Zephaniah is talking about, seemingly. Mm-hmm. So like that that's the occasion, I, I suppose, to like uh, that that I mean the the presence there would be the thing that would squeeze out anxiety, hopefully. Yeah. And and perhaps to drawing attention to what Paul might be describing in worry versus what we often worry about, you know, to the Philippian church, like what would they be worried about versus, you know, like we're worried, you know, it's Advent. We're worried about like whether we got all the presents right or something, you know, I was worried that daredevil was going to cancel and it did. Yeah, man. Don't put, do not put your hope in earthly things. That's so, it was such a great show too. I was like the best comic book interpretation I think I've ever seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like a whole conversation I want to have about the business model for Netflix, like how they can how they can do this. Like they just start so many things. It's I awesome. How, I don't know how it's sustainable. Like I just don't the the the, the nuts and bolts of it like don't make sense to me. But um, it is it is the golden age of television. 
It, it, well, yeah, like, like, I would agree. There's no, there's no way, like, if you would have told me, like, that Julia Roberts or Holly Berry were going to do, like, serial dramas and not, like, it's, like, television's bigger than film now. Mm-hmm. It's awesome. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. All right. If this is if this is Empire, that, if it's, if that's the cost of Empire, I like it. <laughs> it's better TV. Oh, you can't you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Oh my god! If that's the cost of Empire and Netflix, that's good. Okay, we're gonna, yeah, dude. We're gonna put that on your epitaph, Scott. All right. Oh, absolutely. If this was the cost of Empire. Um. All right. Let's go to the, the Luke text. Go to the Gospel. The Brood of Vipers. Um, again, like I'm, I'm beating on this again a lot, but uh, is this the kind of text that you think people are expecting to hear about during Advent? You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. It means that I, I think people are hoping to hear about the sweet little manger and, you know, decking the halls and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> That's like, a, what's that movie, Tuscadello Night? Tus- what's that with the race car? They pray to baby Jesus. Oh, Talladega Nights. Yeah. Talladega Nights. I pray to baby Jesus. I love that. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you, the, the you know, like, yeah, I think of like Little Town of Bethlehem's, right? The hopes and fears are all. Uh, of all the years are met in thee tonight. So why hope and fear? I mean, they're like the coming of the Lord. There's this, you know, it is, if it's sort of, you know, I think Tim Keller has said that, you know, that pride or sin is, is pride or sin or something like when, when we sit, we're only God deserves to sit on his turn and that the atonement is where God dwells or we deserve to dwell. Like it's kind of this switching, you know, but, but it's like, it does the fear. It does dislodge us, right? The presence of God dislodges us from the throne, right? Mm-hmm. What's well, thinking about dislodging, and I don't necessarily want to end on this, but um, it's interesting about how uh, it talks about how even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so I think the homiletical move sometimes is to think about, well, what are the trees? Like, are we the trees? Are you going to light a branch on fire in your church? <laughs> Dude, I've I've lit things on fire in church before. I, I Dude, would, you're great. I I would I yeah, yeah I would go to your church like I would just go to see what you were going to do next. I, I more likely than not I would have like I would bring an axe into worship um and and have it like displayed on the altar next to some chopped up firewood or something just to like frighten people. What if you wore a hockey mask and had an axe? <laughs> that would be awesome. Nobody would come back. Um but I mean to like what do you think about this this metaphor of the trees being thrown into the fire? And what what are the trees? I mean, is it us? Is it the church? Like, if we're yeah, thinking, I, like how okay, do we make sense? Here's of what's interesting about John. I think John is just a fascinating character, right? Like, because first of all, his dad is a priest, right? And so his this he's one of these you know his mother like you know was longing for a child. They're longing for a child. Finally, they get the child they they desire, and he becomes like I think of like gosh. Your dad was a priest, and you're you're sitting outside saying in the wilderness saying you don't find God in the temple. Come out here. So I just think of like the father son tension that must have been there, like of you know like he's a, pri- a priest versus the prophet. You know, like these are sort of you know roles that are kind of at odds with each other a lot of times. So I think that and he, he and he talks like an apocalyptic prophet in the Old Testament. You know, Paul's all in his book, the First Christian. It's a great book. He said it says that you know John like. Uh, any apocalyptic prophet, his message was not yet, but soon, mm. right? And Jesus changes that f- from not yet, but soon to already and but, not yet. Yeah, yeah. But which changes the whole. I mean, that's the Christian mindset. So, like, so I think that that the it's like death and resurrection, right? It's 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 the killing and making alive. It's the judge and deliverance, right? They all come in in one. And so I think that that's it's just interesting how 
Jesus tra- changes John's message. And so much so that John is like, are you the one to come or should we expect another? Yeah. Because yeah. he's done so much transformation. Yeah, we don't we don't talk about that very often. Yeah. And then Jesus says that I've seen I've I, there's great evangel- evangelistic track I found once. It was amazing. It was called Blessed is, is He Who Takes No Offense. Because I love Jesus' response. Blessed is he who takes no offense at me. Mm. Mm. It's a great line. It's a great response to John. So like, yeah, I mean, I think Jesus, like, it seems that his recasting of the day of the Lord, of what that means for God to run here, is offends John to some degree. Yeah. I mean, and, and at the end of the day, you know, his winnowing fork is in his hand, but that's what we say is good news. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's part of that, like, strange already, but not yet tension and, and, um, frustration of this head scratching season we call Advent. So, yeah. And it's like when people say the gospel is the lordship of Jesus, I say, I don't, I don't know that that is in the sense of if the Lord isn't a friend to sinners, I don't know that that's good news. Like, just that he's Lord, because he, there's a lot of, models of lordship that would be terrifying news but the fact that he's the judge who's judged in our place or he's the lord that's the friend of sinners is what makes the winnowing fork not terrifying it's what makes it intelligible like in a way that we can call it good yeah yeah all right well that was pretty good i think that's pretty good scott there we go advent three advent three boom Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks again to Taylor for coming on the podcast. Again, you can find him at thinkandletthink.com. And thanks again to you for listening to Synaxis. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.